Gresham College presents Managing a 21st Century Career by Julie Hope, Manager of a Career Resource Centre, City University Business School. Good afternoon, everybody. Um, first of all, maybe I should explain my apparent change of employer. Uh, these programmes are actually scheduled uh, in a, a very long time in advance. And in fact, when I was first asked to do this talk, I did indeed work for City University Business School. But as I think um, some of you may know, on the 1st of August last year, we actually changed our name to the Sir John Cass School of Business, City of London, known as Cass Business School for short. Um, we did that in recognition of a very generous donation that we received from the Sir John Cassis Foundation, um, which is another educational charity in the city. And with that donation, that's gone a long way towards helping us move into our brand new business school, a picture of which you see there, uh, which is now in Bunhill Row. And where, as our Dean, uh, Lord Curry says, we hope to uh, provide the intellectual hub of the city. But enough of that. Today I'm going to be talking about managing a 21st century career. And I must admit, I'm very grateful that so many of you have turned up. Even I'm forced to admit that on the face of it, a lecture on career management doesn't sound the most enthralling way of spending a Monday lunchtime. For a start, what does career management actually mean? The concept of a career has always been central to the way that we think and talk about our own and other people's working lives. And management indicates that there's some form of plan to be followed. But many people, um, myself included, would probably admit that their career is something rather haphazard, something that they've let happen to them rather passively without any premeditation or planning, rather than something that they've actively thought about and managed. Indeed, some would say that it just isn't possible to effectively manage a career, especially in the uncertain and constantly changing work environment of the 21st century. However, it's precisely because of this uncertainty and constant change that's taking place in the workplace that the concept of career management has evolved as a way to provide people with a framework and skills in order to be proactive rather than reactive in their working life. Over the next 45 minutes or so, I'll start by exploring some of the sweeping changes that have been taking place over the past 30 or 40 years in both higher education and in the workplace, and that the challenges that these changes now provide to anyone who has to earn their living in the 21st century. I'll then take a closer look at what we mean by career management skills and why they're so vital to surviving and thriving in today's uncertainties. Because of my professional background, working as a career counsellor in universities with both, both postgraduate and undergraduate students, my talk concentrates mainly on the problems faced by this group. However, changes in the work environment affect everyone who has to work to earn their living in the 21st century. And developing career management skills is equally applicable to the school leaver, the redundant mid-career professional, and even those who, having reached retirement age, want to stay in the workforce. In order to understand what is happening now and why the idea of career management skills as an active concept has developed, we need to explore the significant changes that have occurred over the past 30 or 40 years in both our higher education system and in the world of work, both of which have significant impact on individual career paths. 
I think this particular quotation describes very well how today's students view, higher, view how higher education used to be 30 years ago. As a case study of the way things were, let me tell you my story. I was born in the 1950s, part of the so-called baby boom generation, born into the stability and economic growth of the post-war years. At that time, secondary education was selective. I passed the 11 plus and went on to a school that emphasized academic achievement. And it was assumed by everyone, myself included, that I'd go on to university. I don't recall any discussion, either at home or at school, about it. My choice of university was much smaller than that available today. The abolition of the so-called binary system, which transformed polytechnics and institutes of higher education into universities, didn't happen until the early 1990s. So there were far fewer than the 121 universities available today. However, this wasn't a problem because only approximately 5% of the school-leaving population went on to higher education in those days. Today, 35% go on to university, and as we know, the government has got plans that 50% that of all school leavers should go on to higher education by the year 2010. My choice of subject was also limited. In the 1970s, you had to go to a polytechnic if you wanted to do a vocational subject, such as business studies or computer engineering. And it was viewed very much as a second best choice. Those of you who attended Professor Young's talk two weeks ago will remember him talking about the tendency in this country to make low assumptions about the quality of vocational training. And I remember very clearly a friend of mine at school um, who was suffered a, a great deal of good-natured teasing because despite being in the A-stream, she decided that she wanted a career in food retailing and she decided that she was going to do food science at the then Polytechnic of the South Bank. Universities in those days offered only pure academic degrees, things like geography, history, maths or philosophy. The academic nature of these courses, however, wasn't a barrier to employment because of the ubiquitous graduate training scheme offered by virtually all of the major UK companies and other major employers, such as a civil service. The shelves of the University Careers Advisory Services were full of glossy brochures, advertising career opportunities in all sectors of British industry. And all of these provided what amounted to another two to three years job-related study, providing you with the skills and the knowledge necessary in order to do the job. But of course you were being paid to do it. These arrangements were incredibly expensive for employers um, who were in fact recruiting supernumeraries who wouldn't be productive for some considerable time. But the expense was justified because the graduate trainees were viewed in the long term as the company's senior managers of the future and were therefore worth the investment. And finally, my university education was free. I paid no tuition fees and received a maintenance grant. And so although I did have part-time and holiday work, it was because I chose to, not because I had to. And when I started work, I could begin to spend my salary on what I wanted to, and not on repaying my student debt. Those of you with children or young relatives are well aware that the situation faced by today's school leaver is vastly different. They face a bewildering choice of, of courses at a bewildering number of institutions. And they also have to think about their careers at a much earlier age. Again, those of you who were at Professor Young's talk last, uh, two weeks ago will be aware of the changing emphasis, even at GCSE level, away from theoretical knowledge, 
i.e. subjects called things like geography, towards applied or practical knowledge, i.e. subjects called things like leisure and tourism, which in effect means that our 14-year-olds have to start to make career choices when deciding which GCSEs to, to take. Having negotiated the minefields of GCSEs, AS levels and A levels, young people are then faced with which university to choose. And choice of university can be crucial to future employment prospects. With fewer large companies around willing and able to bear the expense of graduate training schemes, those employers that do still look for graduate trainees can afford to be choosy about where they look. They're far more likely to target the old universities, the pre-1992 universities, which for a variety of reasons, including the assumptions that we spoke about before, about the perceived low quality of vocational training, are regarded much more highly than the, uh, than the old polytechnics. Because of the gradual increase of young people going on to higher education, we've already noted the government's plans that 50% of all school leavers should go on to university by 2010. Employers also have a hugely increased pool of candidates to select from. Fewer formal training schemes and more students mean intense competition. And less than 10% of today's graduates will be recruited onto one of these graduate schemes which in the 1960s and 70s used to account for 60 to 70% of the graduating population. This in turn means that 90% of young people leaving university these days have to find work elsewhere. And today's graduates need to find work pretty fast because with no maintenance for the majority and the introduction of tuition fees, they're graduating with average debts of around about 10,000 pounds. And these are predicted to double when the recent government high paper, white paper on higher education is implemented and universities can begin to charge top-up fees. And the final challenge faced by today's graduate is the fact that even when they have managed to secure employment in, the career, in their chosen field, they cannot relax. Because in the changed world of work today, it's likely that they will have to go through the whole process of finding themselves a new job either through choice or through necessity, on average another eight times during the course of their working life. Let's move on to examine the reasons why this is. This is a quote from a presentation given in the late 1990s by Robin Lineker, who's a human resource consultant with a major management consultancy. I think it sums up pretty well the 21st century work environment. There have been sweeping changes in the world of work, as well as in the education system, all of which combine to make the prospects facing today's graduates totally alien to the experience of those of us who graduated 30 to 40 years ago. During the 1960s and 70s, and even to a certain extent the 1980s, employment in this country was dominated by huge enterprises who are responsible for providing work for the majority of workers at all levels in this country. Those of you who graduated during this period may remember Roger, the Register of Graduate Employment and Training, which was a doorstep-sized book handed out by careers services and universities that listed all the graduate training schemes available for final year undergraduates. The book was dominated by big manufacturing companies, car manufacturers like Ford and Vauxhall, oil companies like Shell and BP, 
chemical companies like Unilever and ICI, all of whom recruited hundreds of graduates each year. The public sector was another huge recruiter, as well as the nationalised industries, British coal, British steel, British rail and British gas. Graduates and also apprentices who were recruited into these companies felt they could relax. They were now set with a job for life. In return for their loyalty, which was defined as not moving to a job with a competitor organisation, they'd received training and career development, allowing them to progress steadily up a career and a salary ladder. Some people might move up the ladder faster than others, the so-called high potentials. But all would assuredly move up. Their loyalty and service recognised by the organisation until at last well-deserved retirement with a company pension. Today's equivalent of Roger is called Prospects, and it is a much slimmer publication compared to the two to three inches of the old Roger. The schemes described in it will account for employment, as we say, of less than 10% of today's graduates. The other 90% will have to find employment in an environment marked by the following factors. The disappearance of the traditional graduate employers, the death of the job for life, and the changing nature of, of work itself. Let's examine each of these in turn. The disappearance of the traditional graduate employer. The older major graduate recruiters have either disappeared completely, as in the case of the nationalized industries, or have downsized significantly, as in the case of the major manufacturing companies. Decentralization in the public sector means that what little recruitment goes on into the equivalent of the old executive officer and higher executive officer schemes, which used to account again for hundreds of graduates, is handled separately by each government department at much reduced numbers, all at different times and following different selection processes. Added to this are the effects of the frenzy of merger and acquisitions activity that dominated the business world in the late 1990s. There are many examples. In the food and beverage sector, for instance, Cadbury merged with Schweppes. In the pharmaceutical sector, Glaxo, Wellcome, SmithKline and Beecham gradually came together over a period of time. And in the accountancy world, the big six gradually became the big four through mergers such as that of Pricewaterhouse with Coopers and Librand to form PricewaterhouseCoopers. All of these had been major graduate recruiters in their own right, but the sum total of their combined graduate recruitment post-merger was much less than their individual totals had been. This was also true in the city, where a succession of takeovers following Big Bang and the deregulation of the city in 1986 saw the number of banks in the city reduced from almost 600 to less than 500. Examples here include Dresdner Bank's takeover of Kleinwatt Benson, Deutsche Bank's takeover of the Bankers Trust, the merger of J.P. Morgan and Chase Manhattan, and of course ill-fated Bering Brothers bought for a pound by the Dutch group ING. Today, by far the biggest employers of graduates are the SMEs, the small and medium-sized enterprises, often employing no more than 100 people, and often and mainly operating in the business services sector. Even in the early 1990s, during our last major recession, it was calculated that these organizations were responsible for creating over a million jobs in the period 1989 to 1991. SMEs tend not to operate formal graduate recruitment schemes, but will employ graduates. 
though not on the basis of their potential, but on the basis of what they can actually do for the organization now. Graduates today are expected to hit the ground running with no need for extended and expensive training. Consequently, today's graduates have to have a clear idea of exactly what skills they have to offer, and they need to be able to market themselves effectively to potential employers. When advising on making applications to these organizations, today's students need to be told that they must identify not what the organization can do for them, but what they can do for the organization. The next factor is the death of the job for life. The traditional graduate recruitment program, with its emphasis on identifying and developing senior management potential for the future, and its massive investment on on-the-job training, could only be justified by locking recruits into lifetime employment through permanent pensionable contracts. This was coupled with a company management system of career management that ensured individuals were moved through a variety of different roles within the company in order to develop and extend their knowledge and skills. This, of course, was made possible by the size and the diversity of most graduate employers. In the very best companies, graduates had an input into their roles and potential career paths that they wanted to follow, and the necessary training and support was provided and paid for by the company in order to facilitate this development. Today's graduate faces a very different scenario. With the majority of them entering employment with small organizations, they can expect neither the expensive support and training, once the prerogative of the graduate trainee, neither will they find company-managed career progression opportunities to develop their skills and, and experience. Graduates today, as we've seen, must expect to change employers on average every three to five years if they want to continue to develop their skills and progression increase their salary, and maintain career progression. This means over an average working life of some 40 plus years, which may increase if government warnings about poor pension provision are accurate, they'll need to launch a new job search on average eight times during their career. Another associated change with the move away from a job for life towards a career characterized by a number of different employers is the rise of self-employment the freelancer, or as they're now known, interim managers. They can be found across the whole spectrum of job functions. They come into an organization for a set period of time to provide specific skills and experience to complete a particular task or project, and then they move on. For the employer, the interim management represents the ability to purchase in scarce, expensive skills with none of the complications of a permanent employment contract, for the interim, access to a variety of employers and experiences enriches and develops their skills and thus makes them both more employable and also able to command premium compensation packages. However, they're as good as their last assignment and they need to be comfortable working outside the comfort zone of permanent full-time employment and the security that that represents. They also need to be confident in their self-marketing skills as they will be searching for new contracts on average every six months. The final factor is the changing nature of work itself. Over the past 30 to 40 years, we've seen the collapse of the British manufacturing industry, but massive growth in the business services sector that in its broadest definition now accounts for employment of some 80% of the UK workforce. 
New jobs have appeared on the scene. Call centre operators, for instance, didn't exist 10 years ago. Whilst others have totally disappeared, often overtaken by the rise in technology. Who remembers comptometer operators, for instance, or punch card operators? I started work in 1978, which is actually only 25 years ago, but still before the day of, days of laptops, photocopiers and email. I remember getting my letters typed in the company typing pool, who used carbon paper and flimsies. Messages were sent by a telex machine, and the very first personal computer I ever saw took up the size of half of the desktop. It's a truism, but change is inevitable and no job is protected from redundancy. Technology continues to be the main threat, but there are other changes too. One recent example is the growth in outsourcing, or companies getting rid of non-core activities by contracting outside organizations to undertake them on their behalf. Recruitment exercises, finance operations, information technology are all typical examples of the sorts of activities now no longer being carried out internally by companies, but being bought in from third parties, often small specialist consultancies, or indeed the freelance interim manager. In terms of implications for individuals, there is a need for people to be aware on what is going on both in their industry and in their area of specialization. Individuals need to keep their skills up to date, often at their own expense. And above all, they need to be flexible. This flexibility may take many forms, a willingness to diversify skills into a new functional area, a willingness to develop a whole new set of skills and accepting the probability of at least one complete career change will be necessary during the course of a working life. We're also seeing the rise of the portfolio career, where an individual puts together a full-time job from a number of different part-time contracts, sometimes related, sometimes not. Uh, I have a colleague who used to be a human resources manager in the city. He now combines working as a career counsellor at a specialist financial markets business school, together with working as an outplacement consultant, counselling redundant city professionals. Another friend combines work as a night matron at a care home, together with running a cattery. Whilst a member of my own staff maintains our website during the day, but at night pursues his alternative career as a musician playing in a band. So to summarize, so far we've examined the changes in both education and in the workplace, and the challenges that these now pose for those looking to start or to maintain a career. To be successful in finding work today requires proactivity and self-reliance, and the development of a new set of skills and also an attitude of mind that had not been required before. In the past, university graduates were often described as having career success handed to them on a plate. I hope that you'll agree with me that today's university graduates, or indeed anyone entering the job market today, have a completely new set of circumstances to deal with and need a completely new set of skills in order to survive. Peter Hawkins is a leading writer and researcher into career management skills. And this quotation, I think, sums up his approach. Workers today have to remain employable in a workplace characterized by constant change. The key to doing this is developing career management skills. So what exactly do we mean by career management skills? Well, I think this probably sums up the five groups of skills 
that we need to make sure that our young people are gaining today. Let's look at them one by one, starting with self-awareness. Self-awareness, you could call it the art of knowing what you enjoy doing and also what you're good at. Over the years, I've seen hundreds of students frustrated by their lack of success in getting into a chosen career area. Trying to identify where they're failing tends to highlight two main problems. Either they're applying for jobs because they feel they ought to rather than they actually want to, or they're applying for jobs where they demonstrably do not have the skills necessary to be able to perform the job well. We spend the majority of our working life at work, of our waking life at work. And this is particularly true here in the United Kingdom, where we work longer hours than any other European country. So it's vital that we're actually interested in what it is that we do. But this is so rarely the reason behind making a career choice. Family pressure, peer pressure, even social pressure play a much greater role in determining career choice. Children of doctors or lawyers are pressurized into following the family tradition. People are seduced into careers, having seen them glamorized on TV. Whenever Cracker is shown on television, it's followed by a rush to careers offices the length of the country by young people demanding to know how to become a criminal psychologist. And London's Burning does the same for the fire service. In my current job, I provide careers advice and support to MBA students at Cass Business School. Every year, I see a collective hysteria descend on the class as the closing dates approach for the associate recruitment schemes into investment banks, which is one of the traditional and very highly paid destinations for MBA students. Although not all MBA students want to go into banking, everyone seems to get swept up by the panic of approaching deadlines, and even those students who had previously assured me that they had no interest in a career in the finance sector finally find themselves making applications because they feel that they're missing out if they don't. Of course, these applications are normally rejected because they demonstrate no commitment to the finance sector. But some still manage to buck the system and find themselves working in a bank and gradually discover they hate it. And then they have to resign and they have to start the job search all over again. Strong interest in a career, of course, is not enough. Having the necessary skills is just as important. Again, I see many students interested in and knowledgeable about the financial markets who want to make a career on the trading floors of the city banks. However, if they lack either the psychological toughness or the innate numeracy skills necessary to survive in that particular work environment, then they're going to fail. And they need to be encouraged to discover other roles in the industry better suited to their strengths. Ask any successful person about their work, and what generally comes through is the fact that they enjoy it immensely. Often they don't see their work as work at all, but as being paid in order to indulge their interests. Making sure that we are aware of our own interests and our own strengths, as well as weaknesses, is the vital first step into forging a successful career. The next is opportunity awareness, or accessing the hidden jobs market. It comes as a surprise to many of my students that the Sunday Times appointments section does not represent the sum total of all employment opportunities available. 
In fact, ge the generally accepted figure is that the combined vacancy columns in the press and the specialist media represent only 20% of employment opportunities. The other 80%, the hidden jobs market, where jobs are found through, through proactive speculative approaches and personal contacts rather than reactive responses to adverts. The secret of success in accessing this hidden jobs market is being aware of opportunities that could lead to employment rather than effective searching for actual vacancies. And thus it requires a lot more effort and imagination than simply responding to job ads. And that's probably why it's not terribly popular. However, there's no doubt that opportunity awareness is fast becoming an essential career management tool and that identifying potential opportunities and then being proactive in pursuing them represents the best odds for finding employment these days. Advertised vacancies attract hundreds of, of applications and therefore huge competition. Identifying and putting yourself forward for an employment opportunity uniquely suited to your own particular combination of skills and experience immediately reduces the shortlist to one. Keeping up to date with what's going on needs to become part of the daily routine. I often feel guilty if I'm found reading the Financial Times in the office, but actually it's an important part of my job to know what's happening in the city. Similarly, using the internet, going to trade conferences, are all vital in maintaining knowledge. However, the most effective method, and the one that we here in the UK probably find the most difficult, is the building and maintaining of a personal network of contacts. Networking, or as it's known in the States, the science of schmooze. I think it's probably true to say that we in the UK regard networking as a very American phenomenon and we're slightly dismissive of it. Uh, we see it as self-serving, probably slightly insincere, and for those of us who are rather shy, the prospect of actually doing it is extremely daunting. Yet it is by far the most effective mechanism for maintaining awareness of what's going on in the market and finding out who may and who may not be recruiting. Cass Business School maintains a network of alumni who have all volunteered to be available for current students to get in touch with for advice on career-related matters. It's a tremendously valuable resource of information and contacts, and above all, it's a warm network. All these people have volunteered to be available to help. And yet it's surprising how many students, even the apparently confident and outgoing ones, are extremely reluctant to take advantage of it. They worry about the etiquette of making contact, and they worry whether they will be perceived as being pushy. What they fail to recognize is that the essence of networking is about interpersonal relationships. It's something that we do every day, communicating, making friends with people. We run workshops for students on networking techniques, and these workshops are not rocket science. Almost all the content is pure common sense, remembering people's names, keeping their business cards safe, saying thank you, keeping in contact, even if just once a year at Christmas. But it's the recognition of this as a conscious activity that's important, as well as the fact that it's actually okay to go ahead and do this. Networking skills are actually not that difficult to develop. What is difficult is changing long-held attitudes and gaining acceptance that network is a perfectly valid business process.
there's a similar perception problem with this set of skills. Here in the UK, probably especially in my generation, we've been brought up to be seen and not heard. We're told when young it's wrong to go around telling everybody how good we are at things and that we should never ask for what we want, always wait until it's offered. But in today's culture, this passive attitude is a positive handicap to a job seeker. Self-promotion is not about blowing your own trumpet. It's about being able to recognize and articulate your skills, what you've achieved in the past, and what you can achieve in the future for a particular, for a particular employer. And it's also a skill which needs to extend to every aspect of our professional life, not just to be applied when we're applying or looking for work or being interviewed for jobs. Again, to quote Peter Hawkins, seeing everybody as a client, not an employer, and promoting the benefits that you can bring them are probably the most important qualities in life. Or in short, treating yourself as a business and never missing the opportunity to market me, PLC. Our final set of career management skills are maintaining and developing professional skills, otherwise known as lifelong learning. We need to promote acceptance of the idea that learning is not just something to be done at school and university, but it's a lifelong activity. Rapid and constant change means that skills become outdated very quickly, and outdated skills are not marketable. Virtually every profession now has a requirement for CPD, or continuing professional development. And whilst most students will probably vow that they will never take another examination in their life once they've completed their finals, the truth of the matter is that if they're going to stay employable, they are going to have to. So, to conclude, in my current job, I work with MBA students, as I've mentioned. These are typically in their late 20s or early 30s, and have not only given up a secure job, salary, and a place on the career ladder to come back into full-time education, which is a good example of lifelong learning, of course, they're also paying thousands of pounds for the privilege. They're doing this, of course, as an investment in their future. And they're naturally concerned about their employment prospects once they finished the, end of the, once they finished the course. We have an ongoing dialogue about the role of the Career Resource Centre. They inevitably look at the short term and insist that we should be providing them with a placement service we should be acting as a recruitment consultancy and finding them jobs. Indeed, there is a strong pressure from many sources within the business school that this is what we should be concentrating on. One of the most important factors that business schools, and indeed now all universities, are judged on is the employment success rate of their graduates, how many find jobs and how quickly. The better the employment rate, the higher the schools and universities are placed in the various rankings that provide a very public judgment on the quality of our educational institutions. These range from government assessments through to the various media and press rankings, such as the Financial Times business school rankings. Performance in these various tables has a profound impact on the number of applications for places on courses from prospective students. And also, as we noted earlier, well-ranked universities attract more and more employers to come and recruit from their students, thus creating a virtuous circle. 
Yet, whilst concentrating slowly on placement would meet the short-term objectives of both the students in terms of being found paid employment and of the school in establishing a good employment rate, it's my belief that it's actually not in the best long-term interest of the students. As we've already noted earlier, these students will probably have to go about finding themselves a new job, on average up to eight times more once they've left the business school. And they will also have to take responsibility for developing their own career paths. Without the skills to be able to do this for themselves, they'll be at a serious disadvantage in the market. If we accept, as government policy is indicating, that higher education these days is as much about preparing students for making their contribution to the nation's economy as it is about passing exams, then we must also accept the need to provide our young people with the practical skills to allow them to do this in the best possible way. Or indeed, to paraphrase Lao Tzu, give a man a job and he's employed for the short term, teach him career management skills and he's employed for life. Before I finish, I'd just like to add an interesting postscript. Whilst I was preparing this talk, I spent a lot of time going through current literature on the subject. And I found in an American Human Resources Journal a very interesting article about the fact that the loosening of contractual and indeed even emotional ties between employer and employee had resulted in the fact that the best employees are conscious of the value of their skills, are in huge demand, and are therefore able to move from employer to employer at vastly inflated salaries very quickly. The consequence of all of this being that companies are now actually facing a real war for talent. The conclusion of this article was equally interesting. It suggested that to retain talent, companies need to give attention to the long term again. They should provide employees with reasons other than a huge salary and benefits package to stay with the organization. For instance, providing a career path within the company, facilitating career management for employees, and providing them with a job for life. Should Gresham College decide to rerun this series of talks in about 30 or 42 years, 40 years' time, it'd be interesting to see what the major challenges facing the job seeker in the second half of the 21st century are. Will it be the return of the job for life, perhaps? Thank you very much. For all information, please go to our website at www.gresham.com dot ac dot uk